Well, after our last series on human sexuality, I decided I wanted to get as far away from that as possible. So we are going to talk about uh, the genealogy of Jesus. I mean, that's maybe a little bit misleading. I want to talk about some of the ancestors of Jesus. And you know the, uh, probably if you've been here before, if you want to text your questions to that number, it's also on your handout during class, we'll try to answer as many questions as we can. Usually in December, we do a three-week series leading up to Christmas, and we've done the Christmas story before, we've done Christmas characters before. This time, though, I thought we would look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, and I would pick each week, we would pick out a character, one of the ancestors of Jesus, and then take that opportunity to go back in time and look at their story, the story of their life, the story of their times, and then jump back forward and try to answer the question, why are they in the genealogy of Jesus? What is, the signif is there any significance and what might the lessons from their life be for them to be in the lineage, one of the ancestors of Jesus? So that's what we're going to do for the next three weeks. I tried to pick uh, characters that you may not know as well, that are not uh, as well known, so we can see some of the really interesting stories that don't often get a lot of attention. Well, let me say a prayer and we're going to jump right in. Father, thank you for this day. We're grateful that we can come together to study your word. I pray you'd open our minds, help the Bible come alive to us, that we might see these stories as real events in real history with real people much like us, frankly, much like our times. And I pray that out of that, we might see the reality of your truth and the meaning of Jesus Christ more clearly. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, genealogy in Matthew, this is just a little piece of it, is a stylized genealogy. And what I mean by that is Matthew gives, and this is not uncommon, by the way, amongst the Jews, he gives 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile in 586 B.C., and then 14 generations from the exile to Jesus. And that's probably not every single ancestor, nor do they intend it to be every single ancestor. It's just not the way they looked at it. And so the, uh, there are a lot of reasons why. Why 14? Why 3? Uh, but basically, that's the genealogy that we have. You start with, uh, Matthew says this, this is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Why those two? Because there were promises made to both of them. Abraham was promised that you'll be a chosen people, you'll have a chosen nation, but in some way I will bless all the nations of the earth through you, meaning through your descendants or a specific descendant. And that's understood to be a messianic prophecy. It's, it's something about this Messiah, this Jesus that's going to come. Then David, King David, we're going to talk about him a little bit because I want to talk about his grandson. But King David uh, also promises made to him that your throne will endure forever. Well, clearly not politically would it endure forever, but in an interesting way in the Messiah, it most certainly does endure forever. So Matthew highlights that, and he begins with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Then we go down through a later time period. You see Boaz, the father of Obed. Boaz's mother, by the way, was Rahab. And you see a couple of interesting things. We could talk about the genealogy itself for a long time, but I want to highlight a couple of things. First of all, there are Jews and non-Jews in this genealogy. For example, 
the father of Obed is Boaz. He was married to Ruth. Ruth is not a Jew. And so Jesus' lineage includes Jewish people and Gentiles. Rahab uh, was not a reputable person of the time. She was a prostitute. She was an innkeeper at that time. And so you have reputable people and disreputable people in the genealogy of Jesus. You have kings in the genealogy of Jesus, and you have commoners. And so the genealogy really has quite the mix and breadth of people. When we come down from David, who becomes king, and then his son Solomon, and then Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. And I'd like to talk to you about Rehoboam. I trust he's probably someone that you weren't reading about last night, so hopefully this will be fresh to you. And I'd like to talk about him and what part he plays. But in order to do that, we need to go back in time, and I brought a map. I brought several for you. Yes, it's time to get back to the maps. We need to see the Middle East from the time period of, depending on the chronology that you like, about 1440 B.C. or 1250 B.C. A lot of argument about when Israel entered the land of Canaan. But fundamentally, let's say about 1400 B.C., Moses, Joshua, they come in, having left Egypt, come in from the east, they go into the promised land. This map is a map of Israel and the allotment of the territory. This is not the territory they conquered. I'll show you that in a minute. This is just the allotment of the 12 tribes. This is their territory. They're supposed to go in and conquer that and dwell there. So the 12 tribes of Israel. The reason I start here is because a great deal of the rest of the history and a big part of, the, of Rehoboam's life is going to center around this tribal identity. The Middle East then, as now, frankly, very tribal in nature. Loyalties were primarily to the tribe before the nation. There's not really a nation of Israel in 1400 to about 1000 BC. There are the 12 tribes of Israel, sometimes cooperating, sometimes not, trying to defeat the people that God said were in the land that they could have. So this is the tribal allotment. <clears throat> Even then, there is tension between the tribes. Some tribes get along, other tribes don't. Some band together, others don't. Some fought together, some didn't. And so you see the tribal nature of Israel, and that's going to come into play because as they began to try to conquer the land, around 1,000 B.C., so around 1,000 years before Christ, the tribes say, look, the most effective way to do this is to have a king. We need somebody that we can at least all give some allegiance to so we can coordinate this fighting so that we can actually be successful and we'll all benefit. So why don't we put some of the tribal issues behind us and let's have a king. You know that God gave them a king, and I want to talk to you about how the map transforms itself a little bit. This map the gray area, the small area, shows you the extent of the kingdom of Saul, the first king of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. And then the green area is of David, and then the additional blue area is where Solomon extended it. And I want to talk about what happens here politically so that we can understand Rehoboam's life and what he does. Saul becomes king, and he has a tough job. The main enemies, you can see on the eastern side of the Jordan, they've got Edom, Moab, Ammon, and Syria, all enemies of Israel. 
Down in the south, they have Egypt. Egypt is the 800-pound gorilla. I mean, Egypt is a massive nation. From Egypt's view, Israel is just a buffer zone, and it's a buffer between the kingdoms in the north. Well, at this time, there's some instability in Egypt, and there's some instability up in what would now be Iraq and Iran. And so the Middle East has, is able to kind of fight it out on their own. The main enemies of consolidating it are the Philistines. You see where Gaza is on the coast, that Philistia. The Philistines were the dominant force. In fact, that area, Gaza was a city then, 3,000 years ago. Gaza is a city today. That is the Gaza Strip, by the way. And so the Philistines owned that nice land down along the coast, pinned the Israelites up into the hills. And so Saul became king, and his job was defeat the Philistines. Tough job, partly because of technology. One of the times the scripture says when they went to fight the Philistines, only Saul and his sons had weapons, I mean swords, armor. The rest of the Israelites didn't have it. That's because here they come out of Egypt with nothing. You know, they're forced slave labor. They don't have a technology. They don't really have a, a well-developed culture. They come into this land, the Philistines, very technologically advanced for the time. They've got blacksmiths. They can make shields. They can make armor. They can make swords. And they were smart enough not to sell that technology to the Israelites. And so in Saul's time, they had a hard time even getting weapons because if you wanted your plow sharpened, you had to take it to Philistia and they'd sharpen it, but they would not sell you a sharpener. That still happens today too, doesn't it, in the Middle East, as people will either supply with arms or withhold arms, trying to strengthen or weaken people in the Middle East. Well, that's what the Philistines did. They wanted to keep Israel subject, and so one way was don't give them the technology to make war. So Saul had a tough time. He was able to carve out a little bit of a territory and, uh, in the middle. And then Saul lost favor with God because he, for example, erected a monument to himself at Carmel. Kind of the power went to his head. So God has the uh, prophet Samuel anoint David as king. You know David's story, this young boy who defeats Goliath and it kind of gives you a forecast that, hey, maybe this guy can defeat the Philistines. Saul, of course, tries to kill him. David ends up being a mercenary with his soldiers for the Philistines. A lot of people think, by the way, that's where David's and his men learned the technology of the Philistines. So by the time he becomes king, after Saul is, dies in battle with the Philistines and David becomes king and the, and the uh, tribes unite behind him, he leads them successfully against the Philistines. And so you see all that area in green, he conquers the Philistines and really a lot of the modern state, a little more than the modern state of Israel, well up into what's today Syria. So David is very successful in defeating them. And you begin to see the golden age of Israel's history. The tribes are pretty united behind David. They've had military success. David is faithful to God. They're not worshiping other gods. They're not building monuments to idols. Now, David had a lot of trouble in his life, didn't he? In other words, David did a lot of things that would pretty much disqualify you from, oh, say, being a pastor or something, you know, and in our time. But inside, we know that spiritually, David always had a heart for God. He always turned back to God. So even though he had failures and some weaknesses, he was faithful to God in a lot of ways. And so God blessed him, and you have this. David's legacy was a legacy of a very imperfect person who 
had difficulty in some phases of his life, but spiritually was a very solid person who never departed from God, never turned to other gods. And so God blessed David, and his legacy was one of human weakness but spiritual strength. Well, when David died, he passed the kingdom on to his son Solomon, and things just kept going uphill. Solomon inherited a pretty stable kingdom militarily, and then because of his wisdom, he ended up parlaying that into probably one of the richest kingdoms of the time. Solomon was very shrewd. His father David had conquered some of their enemies on the east side, Edom, Moab, Ammon. About this time, Egypt wakes up, gets their act together, and says, hey, I'm not sure I like a strong kingdom on my northern border. Maybe that's not such a good thing. Solomon was pretty shrewd. Politically, the way he ensured the safety of his kingdom was partly militarily, but partly by alliances. And so he began to form alliances, both economic alliances, his international trade was renowned. When you read the book of 2 Samuel, you'll see, wow, how rich he was and where all he traded with. He also began to do something in those days that cemented ties. He began to marry the daughters of the kings of the nation around him. Now, we don't do that to cement alliances much anymore, but in those days, that was a smart move. He married the daughter of Pharaoh. He married some of the royalty from all those countries around, and he began to form alliances. You see this in the history of Europe well into modern era of the kings intermarrying to form alliances. Well, that's what Solomon did. He was pretty smart. He pretty much neutralized Egypt by saying, look, let's not fight. I'll just marry your daughter. We're family. I'll come over for Thanksgiving. It's great. You know, we, you know, we're friends here. There's no reason to do that. What, you know, I wouldn't treat your daughter badly. I'm a son-in-law. So there's no need to make war. That's what Solomon said. And so he had a lot of uh, power. And so it really was the, the highlight of the time of Israel. It was a golden age in the history of Israel, both economically, militarily. And you can see he not only extended Israel beyond Syria, but well up into Turkey and Iraq. And so large kingdom was Solomon. On the inside, however, uh, things are going a little, a little against him. On the one hand, Solomon begins to have difficulty spiritually. Things are going great for him on the, on the outside, but Solomon begins to have these spiritual struggles. He also begins to have a great deal of tension between the northern tribes in Israel and the southern tribes. David had been smart enough to pick Jerusalem as a capital. Jerusalem was kind of in a neutral territory. It was a smart move for a capital. And so it, it, he tended to unite the tribes. Solomon, on the other hand, began to build and tax and have forced labor. In other words, he would conscript people to come and build. He built the temple, magnificent temple in Jerusalem. He fortified cities. He built monuments. I mean, he was a great builder. Well, all that tax money has to come from somewhere. The problem with the northern tribes is they began to think to themselves, look, we're sending our kids down there to go build all these things for Solomon. We're writing checks to the IRS every year, and my roads have potholes. But Solomon's roads are paved with gold in Jerusalem. And so there begins to be tension between those northern tribes and the area of Jerusalem, the couple of tribes there in the south. And so he leaves this legacy 
of, of that tension. He does one other thing. One of the real consequences of his politicking and intermarrying is this. Here's what the scripture says about King Solomon. He loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter, whom he married, built her a palace, built her some temples to her gods. He said he also married Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites. These are all the surrounding uh, countries that were enemies. They were from nations about which the Lord told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth. This guy's making alliances all over the world. 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord as the heart of David his father had been. So you see the difference. Solomon is more successful in some ways than David, but he has this spiritual weakness, and that begins to sow the seeds of decline. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Molech, god of the uh, Ammonites. So he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. He also began to see some problems internally, and he began to see some internal tension those ten northern tribes, let me tell you the story of a, a guy named Jeroboam. This is not, uh, not related, but here's Jeroboam. He is an Ephraimite, and if you remember the tribe of Ephraim, it's one of the 12 tribes, and it's up north. And he's a really up-and-coming young executive. He was one of Solomon's officials. He's of the tribe of Ephraim. It said, and he rebelled against the king. Solomon had built terraces and was doing work in Jerusalem. He was doing construction work, and he noticed that Jeroboam was really good. I mean, he was a, a get-things-done kind of guy. So he put the whole labor force of the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh under him and said, all the conscripted labor that come, you, rule, you, know, you take care of them, and you get these building projects done. Well, the northern tribes say, Jeroboam, you're one of our boys. I mean, you went to University of Ephraim up here, you know, played ball at the local high school. You understand our issues for us. We think that maybe we'd back you in a little rebellion against Solomon because we're tired of paying these taxes and driving on bad roads, right? And so he does rebel, but Solomon's too strong. And so he flees to Egypt. He goes south into Egypt. The Pharaoh there, Shishak, has consolidated his power and he takes him in. He takes him in because Egypt doesn't like having that strong a country on its northern border. Now, if they were an ally, that's one thing. But really, you really don't want a strong nation there, and maybe your enemy comes in, unites with them, and you've got a massive army right on your border, much like the Middle East today. There are players in the Middle East today whose interests are served by destabilizing the countries around them. I'll give you a great example. Back in the Iran-Iraq days when uh, the nation building was trying to go on in Iraq and rebuild that nation, that was not in Iran's interest. The, Iran's interests were served by having a weak neighbor, Iraq. Same with Egypt. Their interests were served by having a weaker kingdom. And so, of course, they'll take in Jeroboam, never know when that might come in handy, right? Here's a guy who's got the allegiance of the northern tribes, Never know. Maybe we can get an army and use him to go in and destabilize Israel. So that's what's going on at the time of 
uh, at the time of Solomon's death, basically. So Solomon dies, and now we get to the story of his son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam inherits this golden age. I mean, he's got the richest kingdom Israel has ever seen. He's got the biggest kingdom Israel has ever seen. He's got good international alliances. What he doesn't have is very good relationship with those northern tribes. Jeroboam's already rebelled, so what he does, he goes north into their territory for his coronation. And so the tribes all come together, and this, you can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 12. The tribes all come together and they say, yes, you're Solomon's son, you're the rightful ruler, you're of the house of David, of the lineage of David, and so yeah, you should be king, but before you put the crown on, we just want to talk to you a little bit. And here's what they said. They called him the assembly of Israel, and they said, listen, your father Solomon made our yoke very heavy, meaning all this forced labor, all these taxes, man, this is, this is not good. So I'll tell you what, Rehoboam, they, he made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. In other words, ease up, lower the taxes a little bit, a little less building. Why don't you send some money in here and repair our bridges, and we will serve you. So that's what he needs to do to consolidate this power inside. So it, he says to the to people in, that come to him, he said, look, i got to think about this. Give me three days. Come back. I'll give you my answer. So in the meantime, he goes to King Solomon's advisors. It says, he took counsel with the older men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was alive. These are the guys that helped Solomon build this. And he said, how would you advise me to answer these people? And they said, if you will take this opportunity to be a servant to these people and be kind in your response and lighten their load, they in turn will be loyal to you forever. This is a great opportunity to, to give them uh, some grace and then they will serve you. He says, but he spurned the counsel that the older men gave him, and he took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. I mean, this is a story of teenagers everywhere, right? Parents know nothing. My friends are so smart. Anyway, so he goes to his friends, and he said to them, what do you advise that we should answer these people? What do you think we should do? They said, lighten the yoke that your father had put upon us. And here is his friend's advice to him. They said, tell these people who said your father put a heavy yoke on us, why don't you make it lighter? Tell them this, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. I'm going to tell you what a scorpion is. A whip is just a whip. And then for criminals and all, they would tie pieces of glass or hooks on the end so that it just really lacerated your back. That was a scorpion. He said, oh, he whipped you. I'm going to tear you to shreds. Now, you don't have to be a counselor to know. There's some father issues here, all right? I mean, we, we've got some unresolved anger. You've got a young man who's basically mad at his dad. I mean, there are just issues here that are going on. This is kind of a Donald Trump kind of persona. He's like, oh, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make this even tougher for you, right? This guy could have really used a good press agent. You know, somebody out there with just a little better spin on this, but he doesn't. He just comes out and says, look, for whatever reason, Rehoboam makes a massive political mistake here. 
a character mistake. And he rejects the wise advice, he takes some very unwise advice. Well, what do you suppose people did? When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, here's how they answered. What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? That's David's dad. To your tents, Israel, look after your own house, O David. Okay, let me translate that for you in PG language. Basically, what they're saying is, the heck with you. You know, if that's the best you can do, you go to your tent, we're going to go to ours, we're going to kick your butt. In other words, we're done with you, we're going to rebel. And so it's a very, very warlike answer. So then Rehoboam compounds his error. He says, okay, well, this coronation isn't going all that well. You know, I kind of thought I was going to be crowned king. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll send an emissary to go kind of make peace with him. So he sends a guy named Adoniram. Adoniram was in charge of all the forced labor. Let me tell you what this is like. This is like sending the IRS commissioner to go tell people that you should vote for higher taxes. I mean, this is a politically suicidal move, right? How many presidential candidates do you know call on the IRS commissioner and say, why don't you go out and campaign for me? That's what he did. He said, I'll take the guy who's in charge of all the forced labor and you go make peace. Well, you see what they did. They said, oh, we've been wanting to talk to you. And they killed him. And King Rehoboam gets in his chariot and hightails it as fast as he can back to Jerusalem. He barely escapes with his life. Needless to say coronation didn't go all that well, right? He ends up not only not being king, he's got a full-fledged rebellion on his hands. Ten of the northern tribes break away, and he only has two tribes that stay loyal to him right around Jerusalem. And so what we end up with is what's called the divided kingdom. This is about 930 B.C. And so you, the kingdom of Israel splits in two. And so you have Jerusalem is the capital of Judah, and it's that southern portion, and its name becomes Judah. The northern portion, its name becomes Israel, and that's a little confusing, but those ten northern tribes retain the name of Israel. This is what is later will become Samaria. So Rehoboam sees things kind of going south. Meanwhile, the northern tribes call for Jeroboam, one of their own boys, and says, why don't you come back? We need a king. You can be our king. Shishak goes, bonus. This is great. And so sends him back and says, now I've got an ally. I've got the 10 northern tribes allied with me. Egypt's role, by the way, in this situation is very much like Russia's role right now in Syria. You know, Russia intervenes to prop up the government of Assad because that serves their interests and goes after those enemies of Assad because for their strategic interests, they want the Assad regime in power. Egypt wants this nation split up and weaker, and they want a guy who's loyal to them on that northern throne. And so Egypt is playing geopolitics just like anybody else. They want a weaker Israel, and they want their own guy on that northern throne. And so Jeroboam does that. Jeroboam in the northern side, does a couple of interesting things. He realizes that in order, he's got to unite those tribes. And so he begins to do things that are politically astute, but he begins to do some things that are spiritually very foolish. He realizes that Solomon built this beautiful temple in Jerusalem, and all the people are following the law of Moses, and they're going to make their sacrifices at Jerusalem. And he goes, this is not good. I can't have all my people 
going over to Rehoboam's capital to go to church, right? So he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'll build my own temple. And so he does. And the scripture says in Bethel, right across the border, he builds a nice temple, builds a religious area, and then all the way up north in a city called Dan, well up north by Syria, he builds a temple. And he begins to do their own worship, not at the temple in Jerusalem, but at his own temple. In fact, this is the remains of the temple that's in Dan, the one up in the north. Uh, the scaffolding isn't original, but the stones are. But basically, you see a platform on the right. You see the steps coming down. In that temple enclosure, right in the middle, is an altar. There are animal bones all around the area. There are shovels that the priests would use for the ashes. In other words, he has recreated the temple worship that is supposed to be done in Jerusalem. He has recreated that in Bethel and in Dan. And so it's interesting in the history of Israel to see how they wandered away from the faith for political reasons. This wasn't started because of religious unfaithfulness. This was started because Jeroboam needed to unify those northern kingdoms. And so one slip led to another. By the way, if you want to see this, we'll go there in February when we go to Israel and see this site. And it's really a fascinating site. And you get, just get a glimpse of this is what was going on in that area, in that time period. So Jeroboam builds these temples. And he begins to lead the people away from God, trying to consolidate power for himself. You see that happen all the time, too, in political arenas. Is you, you basically want either a state religion or you want religion stamped out so that loyalty is to the state and not to God. And that's what Jeroboam was trying to do. He wanted the loyalty to be to the nation, this new nation, and not to God. In the meantime, Rehoboam, down in Judah is having his own problems. At first, he stays faithful to God, but then pretty quickly, as soon as he consolidated his power, he said he reigned for 17 years in Jerusalem, and his mother was an Ammonitess who worshipped other gods, and he said Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord under him. He said they stirred up more anger than toward their fathers. They kept high places, sacred stones, Asherah poles. In other words, they're worshiping other gods. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nation that the Lord had driven out before him. So think about where Rehoboam's going. This career is not on a good trajectory. He's made some political mistakes, and he's now effectively shrunk this golden uh, empire that Solomon had built. He's just ruling a small area in the south. And to add you know, fuel to the fire, he's turned away from God, the God that basically built this. And so he's making some very poor spiritual decisions as well as some very poor uh, political decisions. Well, the political environment's about to get worse. God says, look, because you've turned away from me, you, you don't have my blessing. Shishak's sitting down there. This is now five years later. Shishak down there says, time is right. I've got an ally in the north. I've got a 180,000-man army in Judah, and I don't like having a 180,000-man army on my border. It's time to invade because they're weak. Their God's not with them anymore. My buddies are on their northern border and can split their forces between the two. And so Shishak invades. And Shishak comes in, and he decides he's going to destroy it, and he's going to conquer it. And a prophet of God comes to Rehoboam and says, Rehoboam, what are you doing? He says, you've turned away from God, 
and this is, this is what's going to happen to you. I mean, there are consequences of being unfaithful to God. And so it says that uh, the leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves, and they said, the Lord is just, and we are not. He's right. We're wrong. We have been faithless. So when the Lord saw they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to the prophet and says, I will not destroy them, but they will become subject to Pharaoh Shishak, so they may learn the difference between serving me and serving the kings of other lands. And that's exactly what happened. Shishak came in, and so Rehoboam realizes, God's not with me. I'm sandwiched between two hostile forces. I've already ticked off all the uh, tribes in the north. They're certainly not going to help me. I'll be lucky if they don't attack me, which they do later, by the way. But that they don't attack me, there's no way in the world I'm going to deal with this guy. So what do you do? You buy him off. So he said, look, instead of having a battle, what do you want? What, you know, he takes out his checkbook, and he says, what's it going to take? you know, to settle this. And Shishak says, pretty much everything you have is what it's going to take. And he does exactly what God said. Pharaoh Shishak attacked Jerusalem and he carried off the temple, uh, all the treasures in the temple of the Lord. Think about all the treasures. You may not remember this, but you can read about it, that Solomon put in there. He gilded the temple with gold. He made gold shields. They served with gold utensils. I mean, he just totally decked it out. And Shishak comes in and strips the place bare. He takes everything that they have. He says, as a matter of fact, it was so bad that Rehoboam had to make bronze shields to replace the gold ones that his guards used to have. And he used to go to the temple. The guards would go with him. When they returned, they put him back in the guard room. But because Rehoboam humbled himself, the Lord's anger turned from him and he was not totally destroyed. Really interesting lesson here out of this. As you think about what's happening the idea of serving God versus serving the gods of this world. At that time, if you'd asked Rehoboam, who's the better master, God or Shishak? That's an easy answer, isn't it? But God said, sometimes you need to learn that on your own. And boy, that's been true in our lives too. Sometimes we trade gold for bronze. Bronze looks shiny, but it doesn't keep the shine, and it doesn't have the value of gold, does it? This is a really interesting picture. The gold shields of God and the bronze shields of the gods of this world. And sometimes we trade that as well. And it takes that sometimes to come to our senses. So serving God versus serving the gods of this world. His legacy, think about what you saw with that massive empire of David and Solomon. And now Syria's gone. Moab's gone. Edom's gone. The northern ten tribes are gone. The Philistines have fired back up. He basically has taken this and run it completely downhill. I mean, think about that. In one generation, that unbelievably great empire has turned into that. Basically a subject state of Egypt, a split civil, you know, civil war, and a split in the country, and all of the enemies are powerful again. Basically, think about Rehoboam for a second. Rehoboam, bad family life. I mean, think about it. Dad's got 700 wives and 300 concubines. How many birthday parties do you think Solomon made, right? How many Little League ball games of Rehoboam's do you think? Not many. We've got some real dysfunctional family things going on here. You think of a broken family, think of 700 broken families. You know, it's not a good situation. He's got this really dysfunctional life. David, by the way, trained his son Solomon. He put Solomon in the care of the prophet Nathan, and Nathan trained him. 
Nobody looked after Rehoboam. As wise as he was, Solomon made no, no effort to train him. And so you get this angry, foolish young man on the throne who's spiritually weak. He's weak outside, and he's weak spiritually. And so you just kind of go downhill. This story of David and Saul, this part of Jesus' genealogy is just the downhill slide. So dysfunctional family, total failure as a king. Now, if you go into our nursery, you're going to find some little kids named David. If you go into the nursery in Israel, not so many here, you're going to find a lot of little Shlomos, you know, little Solomons, right? You will not find any Rehoboams in our nursery. He is not revered. He is not looked up to. In fact, probably didn't even know who he was till you got in here. He was a total failure as a king. Which leads me to an interesting question. If you want to have the genealogy of the Messiah, why don't you pick winners? In other words, why don't we have all these great examples all along the way? Instead, we don't. We have this imperfect David, but he's faithful. God blesses him. You have this Solomon who at least starts out to be much better, but ends up being spiritually weak. And then you have Rehoboam in the third generation, who's not only of, of moral failure, but he's also spiritually weak. He's politically foolish. He lost everything that his fathers had given him. What's the point of that? You know, what's the significance of that being part of Jesus' uh, lineage, being one of his ancestors? Is there a lesson there for us? I think so. I think this is by design. I think the same reason there are Jews and non-Jews, I think the same reason there are reputable people and disreputable people, I think there's a reason why there are really successful people in the line of Jesus, and there's some really unsuccessful people. And Rehoboam is one of those really unsuccessful people. Questions? It'd be a good time to pause before I tell you why do I think God orchestrated it this way. Question. Um, can you tell us about the calf idols? What were they? What did they look like? Yeah, good question. I forgot to mention to you. Remember Jeroboam, the homeboy who's ruling the northern kingdom? When he built those two temples, he built two golden calves. And he said, here are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. That sounds an awful lot like something that happened a few hundred years before, didn't it? When the Israelites came out and built the golden calf and God said, you have to be kidding me. You know, that you're going to worship this thing instead of me. That's what Jeroboam did. So the, the golden calves are not extant, uh, but they're really reminiscent of the gods of the time. For example, the major god of Canaan, the land of Israel before the Israelites get there, is a god named El. He's the chief god, and his symbol is a bull, just the strength, the uh, symbol of strength. His son, I mean, they're not real, but I mean, the son of the great god El is another god, and his name was Baal. And Baal is also almost always depicted by a bull, the idea of strength. And so what Jeroboam is doing is he's borrowing the symbols of strength from the culture and abandoning the God. And he said, our hope, our strength will be in this golden calf. So he's putting his faith, putting his trust in things that clearly ultimately will not serve him well. So the golden calves were something that he set up in those temples. You will see pictures of bulls in Israel, but you don't necessarily see those. Those golden calves just didn't make it probably in somebody's attic somewhere. Um, in, back to the genealogy, is Mary from the house of David? Good question. Is Mary from the house of David? 
it is believed to be the case. This is kind of a big can of worms, but I'll give you the short version. If you read the genealogy in Luke, you'll notice that it's longer and it's different. I mean, not totally different. It diverges in two places and then comes back together. It's not known for sure exactly because Luke just doesn't tell you exactly what he's doing there. But that genealogy, a lot of people think, is the genealogy of Mary, the literal bloodline of Jesus. And it also goes through David back to Abraham. So many people think, yes, they're both descended through different lines of King David. Okay. Solomon had 700 wives. So what did their lives look like? How did this work? How did it work to have 700 wives? Big credit card bill. I mean, that's, that's one thing that I know for sure. Is that is not cheap, all right? Yeah, it's interesting because that was a symbol in those days. I mean, think about it. He's international figure. People come to him for his wisdom. They come to consult with him. Economically very powerful. Israel's rich in a lot of resources. Uh, they don't have any oil, but they got a lot of other things. And in those days, that was very useful. So he's very rich and very powerful. The size of your harem, the size of how many women was, a, was basically a saying of just how powerful and how manly and just how strong your kingship is. And look at all these royal children that you're going to have. And so it was a sign of status. It was really Solomon buying in to the culture. It'd be like us saying, yeah, I'm going to worship God, but I'm just going to go do everything the culture thinks is important. I want to be rich and famous and have a big house and be powerful and meet all the right people and do all the right things. I mean, that was Solomon. He was pulling away from the things that God valued to they valued. So he would have just had a massive harem. In fact, there are not a lot of remains of this, but you, uh, there are a few remains of this, but he built them houses of the royal ones, he would put temples to their gods by their houses so they could worship their gods. And so very, very bad cultural influence. But it was not uncommon at the time, although this is a little excessive, but this is commensurate with his status. Uh, Pharaoh would certainly have had something similar at that time. Other rulers would also have had this. So it was, it was a sign of power. And by the way, before you get to the next question, one of the reasons I like to talk about these, you know, is this a Bible lesson or a history lesson? Yes. I really want you to see what's happening in 1 Kings 12, 2 Chronicles 10. I'd urge you to go read it. I want you to realize that's not a story. This is history. This really happened in the Middle East. And these are real people doing real things for economic and political reasons. I want you to see God working then so that you'll understand he works now through nations, through economies, etc. So it's, it's a good lesson to see that they're not that much different than we are. Question? So do we know how many children Solomon had? That's a great question. Uh, the only child that's mentioned of Solomon is Rehoboam. He had to have a lot of other children. But for various narrative reasons, Rehoboam appears to have been his uncontested choice for a successor. There's not even another brother, and this happened a lot, one of the other brothers said, oh yeah, I don't know why dad likes you best, I think I should be king. I'm Solomon's son too, I'll just get myself an army. Here, it was Jeroboam, one of the local boys from the ten northern tribes that split this thing up. So no, no other child is mentioned, uh, to my knowledge, I don't believe any other child is mentioned at all, but he undoubtedly had a lot of other kids. Uh, it was difficult to, I mean, you can imagine the family situation. That's about as dysfunctional as you can get. So why is he in the genealogy? What lessons might there be? I think there's some interesting things. Actually, everybody in this genealogy has some interesting things that tend to point to Jesus. 
I think God's got a real sense of humor. He says, when you get there and look back, you're going to understand some things. Here's one. This is a powerful lesson. You do not have to be successful to be part of God's plan. Because if you want to talk about uh, somebody who was unsuccessful, Rehoboam is a really good candidate. I mean, he takes this great fortune and this great empire, and because of his poor political skills, his stupidity, runs it into the ground. He takes this strong blessing of God, and because, again, of his stupidity, he departs from that and forfeits God's blessing. This guy, at the end of his life, Israel's just totally in disarray. At the beginning, it was one of the greatest nations in that part of the world. So you get this guy who's really by every standard of failure, and yet he's part of the genealogy of Jesus. He is part of God's plan to get the Messiah here. Could God have made him wildly successful? Sure. History didn't have to go this way, but it does. And I think one of the powerful lessons for us is you do not have to be successful to be part of God's plan. We see that as Christians sometimes and say, look, I can't witness to other people until I'm totally perfect, or I'm not really going to be acceptable to God until I clean up all my behavior. It's the same thing. The thing is, is I fail in some way, so I can't possibly be okay with God, or I can't possibly be used by God. This Rehoboam is as strong an evidence as possible that you can be a total mess. You can be a total failure by secular reason, and God can turn that into good. God can use us even when we're unsuccessful. And I know if you've ever been through a difficult, difficult time, a failure in just not being the man or woman that you want to be, and you've really failed your family or failed yourself, you've been through business difficulties or bankruptcies or what the world would consider a failure, whether it's through accident or through mistake, we internalize that. We begin to feel like failures. And we begin to think, I don't matter, and I'm not important to God. And that's just not the case. I, I love Rehoboam's story because you think if God can use him, God can use any of us. Because at least I have not goofed up an entire nation, you know. Well, maybe a couple companies, but not an entire nation. Second thing, and this is the one that's really powerful to me, God redeems our messes. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Redeem is such a religious word, but it wasn't to me when I was a kid. Here's what we would do when, when I was little. This was the early form of recycling. We would go around and find pop bottles. I mean, many of you probably did this too. I, I don't know if this is prevalent today. But we'd go around and we'd find pop bottles. And you're done drinking it, you think, this is useless. You know, people would throw them away. They're worthless. We would pick them up, though, and we realized they would pay you, I'm going to date myself, two cents for every one of these bottles that you returned. They would redeem it. I mean, that's what, literally what it said, redemption value, two cents. We collect those. We take them in as kids. They would give us money. They would reuse those bottles. Those bottles became useful again. They became bottles. And so, basically, for a price, those things could be made like new. They could be used again. Some people said they were worth throwing away. Others said not. The world oftentimes thinks that we are throwaway. We live in a throwaway society. We like to throw away people. Drug addict, throw you away. Older person, you're not useful to me anymore, throw you away. I mean, we really have a kind of a throwaway mentality. God doesn't. Rehoboam's a great example of that. The idea that God is willing to pay a price and say, you know what, you can't use that, I can, make, I can use that. 
I can turn that into something that's really functional. In other words, you can take the mess of Rehoboam and keep the, really, it's amazing that the Jews even survived. Because normally what would happen when you've got a strong country, a lot of enemies, and then you become weak, they destroy you. And, and Israel was primed to be destroyed and just to go away from the pages of history, to literally disappear from the pages of history. Anybody know Moab today? Anybody know Edom today, Ammon today? They disappeared into the pages of history. That should have happened to Israel because of Rehoboam, but it didn't because God took that mess and he said, I can even take this, and in fact, I'll show you what. I'll save the whole world out of this mess. I'll get the Messiah out of this mess. Rehoboam's like, you're kidding me. I'm worthless. He said, no. He said, watch what I can do with your mess. He said, I can redeem it. I can make that new. It's a powerful story. What is the message of Jesus Christ to all of humanity? To redeem us. Satan says, you're worthless. You're a sinner. You deserve the wrath of God. And Jesus said, I'll pay that though, because I think we can actually take you and I think we can make something great out of this. That literally is the story of the gospel, is this idea of redemption, taking a mess, taking something that's so broken that the world says this is not worth anything. And God says, oh, watch what I can do with this. That's the story of Rehoboam. That is the historical story of Israel in this time period. And it foreshadows what Jesus will do in our lives. And I think that's encouraging. That's a lot better than having a genealogy where nobody ever made a mistake. Oh, well, Throckmorton I was my great-grandfather, and then Throckmorton II, and I'm Throckmorton V, and we've always been people of fine breeding, and no one's ever done anything wrong in our family for 25 generations. You know, that's not a Messiah I can deal with, right? There's no redemption going on there. You look at this genealogy, you look at Rehoboam, and you say, well, I guess if God can, can do great things with his life, he can do great things with our messes as well. And I think that's really encouraging. Question? Um, is it possible that the number of wives is symbolic? 700, threes, fours, sevens, you know? Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's symbolic of Solomon's stupidity. But I mean, other than that, I don't see any uh, symbolic. But yes, one is always tempted and you can always find theories. I'm not really aware. The scriptures don't allude to it in any way that makes it significant. So what happened to Rehoboam? What happened to Rehoboam? Rehoboam passed into the pages of history to be resurrected on December the 2nd at Crossings Community Church so that his life would actually have some meaning. So Rehoboam uh, died at the end of his days, uh, kind of a, a broken man and uh, ruling over a tiny little broken kingdom. I mean, really, I mean, the, the kingdom of Israel never gets back together. And uh, I'll tell you in our next story about a guy who's a different kind of character but he's living in a time when that northern part is going to get totally destroyed. And the only thing left is that tiny little two tribes down there in Jerusalem. Remember the ten lost tribes of Israel? I'll tell you how they get lost. Uh, we weren't going to find them, but I can at least tell you, you know, how they got lost next week. But he basically died in the midst of something that he could never have foreseen would ever turn out to be good. So, good question. And then finally... The good news of Jesus Christ is for everybody. People like David, kind of goofed up life, but a heart for God. People like Solomon, got a nice, clean, squeaky life, wisest guy that ever lived. 
but really needs some spiritual redemption. And people like Rehoboam, total mess. Goof up in life, weak in his spirit. The gospel is for every single type of person. In that genealogy, Jews and non-Jews, kings and commoners, strong people, weak people, uh, reputable people, disreputable people. That's really what you see in Jesus' ministry. He goes to the Rehoboams of the world and he says, this is a mess, but if you trust me, we'll turn this around. He goes to the Pharisees and he said, you got your act together, but I need you to submit to God and be obedient to him. And it's interesting that the Rehoboams of the world had an easier time trusting Jesus, makes sense, you're sitting in a mess, than the Solomons of the world, the Pharisees who thought they had it all together. So I hope this is interesting to you and useful. I mean, on one sense, historically, I want you to see Jesus' lineage. I want you to see everything that happened as being happening in real life. It's like picking up the paper today. If you picked up the Jerusalem Post in 930 B.C., it would have said this, massive foreign power disrupting things in the Middle East begins airstrikes against, you know, uh, Judah and the southern part. You know, it's, uh, you would have read the same kind of thing. And I want you to see the Bible as working in real life because if you don't see this as being in real life, you'll never see God really working in our real life. And then the message of that is, as goofed up as things were then, as goofed up as things are now, God is really faithful to work in that. Well, as time goes on from 930 B.C., we're going to fast forward a couple hundred years to see what happens. And it turns out that strong northern kingdom is going to come under some real problems. And the nation of Judah is about to be snuffed out. But there is a guy who shows up and does some remarkable things. And I'll tell you about that next time. Thanks, guys.